Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Department of Justice's polite rebuke in response to the ruling by the unqualified Trump Judge Cannon on a special master which has blocked the investigation into Trump's theft of highly classified government documents. Joining us is Bill Yeomans, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law, and also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of management positions, including Acting Assistant Attorney General. He is now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice, and we will discuss the way out for the judge's indefensible decision offered by the DOJ and the hazards of appealing to the 11th Circuit, which is stacked with Trump-appointed judges who, like Eileen Cannon, could rule to protect their sponsor rather than the national security of the nation. Then, with King Charles III proclaimed king on Saturday and Queen Elizabeth II's funeral scheduled for September the 19th, We'll examine the distinction between the late Queen's admirable dedication to duty and service and the Empire and later the Commonwealth she served. Joining us is Maya Jasanov, Professor of History at Harvard University, whose teaching and research extends from the history of the British Empire to global history. She's the author of three prize-winning books, The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World, Liberty's Exiles, American Loyalists in the Revolutionary War, and Edge of Empire, Lives, Culture and Conquest in the East, 1750-1850. to And we will discuss her article at the New York Times, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. Then finally we will look into the mindset, a group of preppers, tech billionaires who plan to escape the apocalypse of their own making through missions to Mars, island bunkers and the metaverse. But instead of rewarding our most selfish tendencies, our next guest, argues that the best way to avoid catastrophe is to ensure it doesn't happen and rediscover community, mutual aid and human interdependency. Joining us is Douglas Rushkoff, named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by by MIT. He's an award-winning author, broadcaster and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. The host of the popular Team Human podcast, he has written 20 books including the bestsellers Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed, written regular columns for Medium, CNN, The Daily Beast and The Guardian, and made the PBS frontline documentaries Generation Like and Merchants of Cool. He is a research fellow at the Institute for the Future, a founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at the City University of New York in Queens, where he's also a professor of media theory and digital economics. And we'll discuss his latest book just out, Survival of the Riches, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. And before we begin, I'd like to apologize to our many listeners who get background briefing via Apple Podcasts. Those listeners lost last Sunday's broadcast, but we were back on on Monday and Tuesday, but were cut off again on Wednesday and Thursday. So we've been working with Apple tech support, and we are trying to fix the interface between Apple and SoundCloud. In the meantime, it is easy to work around the problem by Googling background briefing or going to backgroundbriefing.org, and we're confident that the problem will soon be solved, and we thank you for your patience. 
And joining us now is Bill Yeomans, who's a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law, and also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of managerial positions, including acting assistant attorney general, and he's now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bill Yeomans. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And on Thursday, the Department of Justice announced that it would appeal Judge Eileen Cannon's indefensible ruling blocking the criminal investigation into the classified documents seized on August the 8th at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. So it seems that the department is putting Judge Cannon on the spot, albeit they did it politely, but it, it looks like a pretty smart move on the part of the DOJ. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think I think it was a very smart move, and uh, you know what they've done is to um, sort of put the the bulk of the stuff aside and say, you know, we disagree with your ruling on that, and we're going to take it to the Eleventh Circuit. But insofar as classified documents go, um, we're asking you now to stay your judgment, uh, to stay the injunction that prevents the investigation from going forward injunction prevents the use of the classified documents uh, for criminal investigation purposes. And uh, I think their argument is absolutely compelling, that there is no reason for a special master to look at these documents, uh, and that um, you know, Trump has absolutely no proprietary interest in any of these documents. They can't be returned to him. He has no right to them uh, as classified documents. Uh, they can't possibly involve attorney-client privilege. Um, because uh, that would require some communication between Trump and his private attorneys, and there's just really no conceivable way that could result in a classified document. Uh, And this notion that uh, they should be reviewed for executive privilege is uh, just bonkers. Uh, You know, first of all, there is no executive privilege here. Uh, You know, documents are being uh, passed between uh, various parts of the executive branch. And executive privilege applies when executive branch documents are uh, go interbranch, uh, go to Congress or uh, go to the judiciary. But there's no restriction on the executive's use of its own documents. And it's up to the sitting president to decide who gets access to those documents. And Biden, of course, has said that he has no problem uh, with the documents uh, moving within the executive branch. So um, it really puts Judge Cannon on the spot. Uh, if she um, refuses to uh, lift her injunction on the use of the classified documents, um, she's uh, demonstrating that she is simply going to protect Trump at all costs. So that's what it'll come down to, whether this is another Federalist uh, Society judge chosen by Leonard Leo, who stacked the federal courts and controls now the Supreme Court with these ideological choices, so that will be the test then, is it, Bill, that she will either she'll prove herself to be an ideologue or maybe could be pulled over a little bit and maybe shamed into doing the right thing with some understanding of the law. Yeah, uh, I, I think that it really sets up uh, uh, that dilemma for her. If, 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 she, if she does not um, uh, uh, grant the government's uh, stay of her injunction, um, she she is um, being a complete ideologue. Uh, if she 
does, it's kind of a confession that, well, she she didn't really know what she was doing the first time around. She didn't know the consequences of it. Uh, and uh, uh, she's willing to correct herself. Uh, we'll see. But, you know, the the other thing, and this goes back to, Ian, to your, your very accurate comment about what's happening with the federal judiciary, the 11th Circuit is, is um, you know, no guaranteed victory for the government here. Uh, it should be. I mean, this is a, should be a slam-dunk case. But Trump has appointed six of the 11 active judges on the 11th Circuit. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, I would like not to predict that they're all going to be down-the-line Trumpists who will disregard the law, but um, that possibility is there. So uh, there, there is still some danger for the government, even in appealing. But in the Justice Department's message, if that's the right way to put it, to, to the Judge Cannon about her ridiculous and indefensible ruling, they suggested, uh, or they, they made some hint about the 11th Circuit, didn't they? Yeah, they, 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 they have filed a notice of appeal with the 11th Circuit. Oh, so I the see. case is going to go to the 11th Circuit. But, you know, the, the Justice Department faced a tough choice. They could have simply appealed uh, and let, let the circuit take over, and that uh, I think would have been time-consuming. I think that would have been a mistake uh, because it will take months to resolve an appeal. Um, but um, by, by uh, pursuing a stay, they've speeded up the timeline considerably, and if Judge Cannon um, uh, denies their, their stay, uh, they can file again for a stay in the 11th Circuit to stay her injunction pending appeal. In other words, to allow the government investigation to go forward while the 11th Circuit is deciding the appeal. So if she doesn't do the right thing, that'll be the second test. Both right. The and if, sure. And then the, the idea that if you actually followed her ruling that you'd actually give back these classified documents to Trump <laughs> is so absurd. I mean, it is. and then she made the case in her ruling that the DNI, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, could continue their investigation. And the DOJ is now saying, wait a minute, <laughs> there's no way they can do that without working with the DOJ and the FBI um, agents involved. Some of this stuff is so highly classified that the counterintelligence people at the DOJ had to be read in because it it looks as if According to the Washington Post, some of the most sensitive secrets are to do with a foreign nation's nuclear arsenal and their defenses, and there you know suggestions that it might be the state of Israel, which could be highly uh, incendiary if that were proved to be the case. So, yeah. don't do you think that even the ideologues that Trump appointed on the Eleventh Circuit understand the nature of state secrets? And nuclear secrets. I mean, it just well, seems I don't so know. obvious. I, it, it's yeah. It's it's clear from it's clear from her opinion that she didn't understand uh, how investigations work and how how you know the fact that the FBI is both our domestic intelligence agency as well as our uh, 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 criminal investigative agency. And you know, after after nine uh, eleven. Uh, the FBI was revamped uh, to create better communication, better cooperation between the intelligence and and criminal investigative sides of the FBI. And so, at times, they have to they use overlapping techniques and occasionally overlapping personnel. But uh, you know, there is real urgency here, as, as you suggest. I mean, these are these we're led to believe are uh, uh, very serious secrets, very sensitive information. 
and and this is this is a huge national security investigation. I mean, frankly, it, it, putting it in context, we, we we have this president who was untrustworthy with uh, secure information when he was in office, uh, who also ran his presidency as a giant grift, and uh, he's now in possession of these uh, incredibly valuable documents valuable for blackmail purposes, for leverage purposes, valuable for sale purposes. Uh, and it's just not unreasonable to think that he has nefarious purposes in mind or that he has already uh, committed nefarious acts. So there's urgency in getting this done. And the thought that the investigation would be held up on these frivolous legal grounds is just infuriating. And what we're talking about among the, what, 15,000 documents, most of which have no relevance in Shia's Muddy the Waters, all the DOJ is really focused on and concerned about are the classified documents. There were 42 classified folders that were empty. Now, we know they have notations on them about what the contents were, and that would help the FBI and the DOJ, along with the Director of National Intelligence, do a threat assessment. But the fact that they're empty opens up the question of where do they go? What has he done with these documents? Who yeah. has them? Yeah. John Bolton, his former national security advisor, said he's probably got some stashed away at Bedminster. Yeah, absolutely. We we don't know, and, and that's why the investigation has to proceed. And it would not surprise me if there was, were a search of Bedminster. I mean, at this point, I think that there's probable cause to search all of Trump's residences. But we know that, you know, he does... Uh, shuttle back and forth between Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster, and, and has done so in his post-presidency. So it's it's certainly reasonable to think that there could be uh, more material there. I think I think the the uh, the missing documents is just an enormous concern, uh, and um, you know the the thought that the government would have to stop looking for them is just outrageous. Well, Bill Yeomans, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Bill Yeomans, who's a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights, and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law. And he also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of management positions, including acting assistant attorney general. And he's now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the distinction between the Queen's Admiral dedication to duty and service and the empire she served. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Maya Jazanoff, who's a professor of history at Harvard University, whose teaching and research extends from the history of the British Empire to global history. She's the author of three prize-winning books, The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World, Liberty's Exiles, American Loyalists in the Revolutionary War, and Edge of Empire, Lives, Culture, and Conquest in the East, 1750 to 1850. And she has an article at the New York Times, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. Welcome to Background Briefing, Maya 
Jasanoff. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining. And, and I'm uh, <laughs> come from Australia, so uh, which was originally, of course, a dumping ground for convicts from the British Empire from Britain after the American Revolution had interrupted uh, sending convicts to the state of Georgia. And now, of course, I'm an American, so um, I guess I have a choice here between being a descendant of religious fanatics or descendant from convicts. So how do we deal with our history in the sense that U.S. history is so full of, of the extermination of the Native Americans, the appalling treatment as well as the appalling treatment of the Aboriginals in Australia. And we all have this legacy. And, of course, the added legacy in the United States, of course, is appalling treatment of slaves that were brought here as human chattel. So as individuals, how much were you responsible for the histories of our countries? Well, I think the first thing I just want to say is, I mean, you mentioned that uh, that Australia became the dumping ground for convicts. Of course, before that, it was the, the homeland of, of Aboriginals who had no desire, presumably, or knowledge of uh, what was going to happen uh, to them when, when Brits chose to arrive. Same thing, of course, as you, as you suggest here for uh, indigenous North Americans. So what unites all of us is uh, that we're part of modern imperial history and more specifically modern British imperial history and more specifically even than that, a history of settler colonialism. So, you know, I, I think that the first, I mean, what, what I always return to is the necessity of being honest and transparent about the multifarious histories that come before us, and in the case of any American um, of an immigrant background such as myself, a history in which you know there there was settler colonialism, there was slavery, etc. And one of the things I've been very struck by in the discussions around uh, the demise of the Queen and her relationship to the Commonwealth and the Empire is the extent to which uh, Americans are evidently incredibly invested in promoting a particular vision of the British Empire, which is a little bit perverse because it's often coming from exactly the same people who are waving don't tread on me flags and championing themselves as the uh, supporters and defenders of the founding fathers, who, of course, fought against the monarchy and the British Empire. But it reveals the continuity of uh, commitment to versions of the past that that center white supremacy and settler colonialism and um, and imperialism, which, you know, in many ways the U.S. sort of has inherited um, as a in its own global role uh, from the British. So, what explains though this nostalgic grip that the British Empire has, or the the fact that the Queen is the head of state in countries like Canada next door? They just on Saturday proclaimed her by King Charles III as head of state. In Australia, not so long ago, there was a referendum on becoming a republic, uh, and it was voted down. And Barbados, of course, recently had a referendum, and, and they've now become a republic. So why do these countries like Australia and Canada, to some extent, I suppose, uh, and you mentioned the sort of nostalgia here in odd circles like... Uh, on the far right. What is the appeal, do you think, of holding on to the Queen's apron strings? 
I think that appeal works in different ways for different people. I mean, I've already signaled that I think that there's a very just sort of, um, you know, transparent, far right, white supremacist um, strand in all of this. And I don't want to discount that. But I think that for many, you know, it's also a, a product of what has been an incredibly successful um, you know, media operation, public relations operation, and state building operation on the part of the British government and uh, formerly colonial governments for, you know, some of the Commonwealth realms and the monarchy, which is to have made the monarchy intertwined, uh, to, to have intertwined the monarchy with ideals of British power in the 19th century in particular and leading into the 20th century that promoted the notion that the British Empire was a force for good in the world, that it, you know, promoted economic development, that it upheld the rule of law, that it was committed to human rights of some sort, that it, among all empires, was the best. And those sorts of ideals were sustained in some sense by the moving from the age of empire into the entity of the commonwealth, which was designed in some ways to, to, to sustain these kinds of images of the British empire as this force for good. And so, you know, Queen Elizabeth had a extraordinary reign in the sense that she came to the throne in a period when the British Empire was still, in fact, you know, very much a going concern. Um, India and Pakistan, of course, had become independent in 1947, but to, you know, in terms of just global footprint, it was still quite substantial, the British Empire. And over the course of her reign, famously and manifestly, the, the, the British Empire became a thing of the past, but the Commonwealth um, grew. And the queen took her role as head of the Commonwealth incredibly seriously. And in that role was responsible in part for sustaining this, again, those kind of notions of imperial benevolence that were then carried from the age of empire into the Commonwealth. So anyway, back to your, you know, you, you, you launched the question by saying, why is it that people are attached? And I would say that they're attached because, you know, um, they've been trained to be attached in part by, by decades of, um, of, of discussion of the Commonwealth of the British Empire and the British as, as standing for these things, whether it's true or not, is another story. I think a lot of the time it's not true, but people have been trained into that. And on an occasion such as this, when people are reviewing respectfully decades of public service, it is those values that they're going to be turning to, especially. And again, I'm speaking with Maya Jasanoff, who's a professor of history at Harvard University, whose teaching and research extends from the history of the British Empire to global history. She's the author of three prize-winning books, The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World, Liberty's Exiles, American Loyalists in the Revolutionary World, and Edge of Empire, Lives, Culture, and Conquest in the East, 1750 to 1850. And she has an article in the New York Times, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. Well, lately, of course, with all of these retrospective film clips, and you mentioned it in your article, uh, Maya Jasanoff, at the New York Times, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire, quoting from your article, in 1947, then Princess Elizabeth celebrated her 21st birthday on a royal tour of South Africa, delivering the much-quoted speech in which she promised that, quote, my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family, to which we all belong. So 
that is not politically correct in today's terms. Uh, using the word imperial uh, is a huge flag, is it not? Yeah. It certainly is, yeah. And you know, but it's interesting now. We had King Charles yesterday in his address referring to the, you know, the multi-faith and multi-ethnic population of Britain. Um, and you know, I think that what the monarchy, the monarchs, have tried to um, suggest is that there's been a sort of peaceful and seamless transfer of power, as it were, or evolution from. Um, the age of empire into the age of post-colonial Britain. And um, and that's been their job to do. I have no particular reason to doubt the, the sincerity of their own views on these matters of trying to kind of do the, do the right thing, but they're, they're, they're part of and fundamental parts of um, creating a particular narrative about how history unfolded. And, you know, the truth is that as there was the queen making her royal tours, members of her family making their tours, attending ceremonies of independence when the British flag went down and the flag of a new nation went up, as all of that happened for the photo ops and the newsreels, what was also happening or had happened in the background were um, far uglier and more challenging histories, uh, including those of the emergency in Kenya, which was declared just after the queen you know, uh, became queen in Kenya, as she was in treetops in Kenya when she received the news. Uh, there was the emergency in Malaya, there were counterinsurgency um, measures by the British in Cyprus and Aden and so on. And all of that, we're not seeing the newsreels of, you know, that's not stuff that gets promoted in, in the same way. It's very much at odds with the imagery that, that we're invited to consume instead. So in terms of how multiculturalism works in the UK versus the United States. I mean, even a conservative new prime minister who just on Saturday uh, swore this oath, Liz Truss, I swear by almighty God that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to his majesty King Charles, his heirs and successors according to the law, so help me God. She, of course, has a fairly multicultural cabinet and in terms of race relations in the UK, there was actually a, on Saturday a, a shooting of a young black man that brought out enormous amounts of people on the streets. Um, but I'm just trying to get a sense uh, from you of how how we uh, in, here in this country, how we're doing compared to the Brits. Well, I'm very glad that you raised this because I think it points out the complexities of um, mapping um, a person's politics on the basis of, you know, their ethnicity or, or something like that. I mean, in, in the UK, obviously, you know, there's a there's a non, you know, number of very prominent non-white people in positions of power, but what they share is a rather, in fact, hardline version of Tory politics. And yet, you know, the people protesting the shooting of the of the black man are obviously, you know, expressing different kinds of politics, I, I, I would assume. Um, and you know, I think in, in the UK, uh, one thing that's important is that the issue of Brexit has muddied the waters in the sense that there was a deliberate play by Brexiteers for the votes of members of certain ethnic communities in the UK, notably South Asians, by using the argument that if the UK left the EU, then the 
migration from continental Europe would be uh, would be slowed, and therefore there would be more room, as it were, for for um, immigrants from South Asia to come in. And you know, there's some evidence that that kind of um, argument worked. Um, I mean, you know, I I don't really think. I'm in much of a position to say, you know, which nation between the U.S. and the U.K. is doing better with respect to race relations, because I think it's very clear that on both sides of the Atlantic, um, we are so far from equal on matters both of race and of um, socioeconomic access that, um, you know, playing who's doing better, who's doing worse sorts of um, games is not, to me, all that salient when, you know, what's, again, what's manifest over the last uh, 15 years or so is that despite the appearance in more and more of what the Brits call the great offices of state, and I would cite here, of course, Obama and the presidency, our first black woman and Latina on the Supreme Court, et cetera, despite all of that, um, inequality has increased over the last 15 or so years and in both countries. Um, and uh, I just don't think we should lose sight of that at all. So earlier you were talking about the sort of power of the of the royal family in terms of media, and obviously they have a symbiotic relationship, the royal family, with the, the tabloids. So is the difference between the two in a way that here, you could say in the United States we have a kind of Kardashian culture, a worship of a wealthy family and the materialism that they celebrate and then the Brits have a, have a better version. Is that what it comes down to? Well, again, I mean, I'm not much of a fan of better and worse. I would, I would simply say that, you know, what's, what's happening in both cases, I mean, what the Kardashians and the Royal family have in common is they're incredibly wealthy. Um, I, I do think that there's an interesting question about, um, about kinds of power and what kinds of power are revered or celebrated or just, you know, a subject of popular cultural interest. Um, and I think that uh, it's, of course, calculated on the part of the royal family, which incidentally, we also call the royal family now, which is a bit of a construction of the last, you know, well, with the reign of Queen Elizabeth, as opposed to simply speaking of the monarch. But in any event, uh, what's happened is their po actual political power has, of course, you know, been um, being uh, reduced uh, quite significantly ever since the reign of King Charles I. Um, and um, and yet their prominence has remained uh, in public life. And, and so there's been a bit of a migration, you could say, from the source of their prominence having been at one time a function of their actual political sovereign power um, into a function of their wealth and lifestyle. And something of the same obviously obtains here in the US where there has long been a reverence for uh, wealthy figures and uh, and the reverence for the monarchy in the US is in this sense much the same of much the same ilk as the reverence for the Kardashians, people who are living uh, lives that are so far out of the reach of most of the people who are following them that their sources of fascination envy, sometimes schadenfreude, uh, and more. So just in the last couple of minutes, of course, uh, President Biden will be going to attend Queen Elizabeth's funeral on September the 19th. And there will obviously, before then, there'll be extraordinary pomp and pageantry. At the end of your article, I, you suggest that the best that we can hope for would be that the British royal family and the pomp and ceremony that they generate 
would be scaled down and that they would end up being more like the monarchs in Scandinavia. But it's interesting to note that I think one of the the virtues, if I can use that word, of uh, New King Charles is that he seems to have a sort of consciousness about global warming, for example, and it's been quite outspoken about it. He has to muzzle that now. So it seems paradoxical to me that you would have an opportunity to have a different sovereign, but whatever he could bring to the table is being restricted. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I will say is striking to me in this moment is that there is value, in my opinion, in having a head of state as distinct from a head of government as the UK does and the US does not, insofar as having a figure who appears to be apolitical and who can perform certain functions and act as a figure of unity is, uh, you know, there, there, there's a place for that. I think. I also am struck, I don't know if one would call it a paradox or not, but I'm, I'm struck at the extent to which everybody is recalling the Queen's own um, evidently sincere commitment to duty and public service and the, you know, just the sheer number of engagements that she performed and the number of people she met and so on is really staggering. Um, and, you know, I think that, I guess it's funny because it, it, there, there's a discourse of the Queen as an incredibly hardworking person, a person who spent all of her time with the ordinary Britain as, and, and ordinary people around the world as she was performing all of these engagements. And yet that's a that's a version of the Queen which we are being asked to hold alongside the version of the Queen that now is receiving 10 days of incredible orchestrated um, expensive pomp and circumstance around the around her passing. So yeah, I mean, paradoxes abound. I suppose uh, you know my own hopes would be for the ideals of duty and public service in whatever forms they take to be celebrated and hopefully not entirely lost in an era when it seems like so many of the, among other things, elected heads of government. Uh, in the UK and elsewhere are not uh, are not upholding those values as obviously as one version, at least, of the Queen uh, did. Well, that certainly applies to Donald Trump, and he should become the sure uh, president of the United States again. So we have a lot to answer for as a country. I thank you for joining us here, Maya Jasanoff. Pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Maya Jasanoff, who's a professor of history at Harvard University, whose teaching and research extends to the history of the British Empire to global history. She's the author of three prize-winning books, The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World, Liberty's Exiles, American Loyalists in the Revolutionary World, and Edge of Empire, Lives, Culture, and Conquest in the East, 1750 to 1850. And she has an article in the New York Times, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the mindset, a group of preppers, tech millionaires who plan to escape the apocalypse of their own making through missions to Mars, island bunkers, and the metaverse. It's time to say goodbye. Because I'm the man who loves the British Empire.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Douglas Rushkoff, named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. He is an award-winning author, broadcaster and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age, the host of the popular Team Human podcast. He has written 20 books, including the bestsellers Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed, written regular columns for Medium, CNN, The Daily Beast, and The Guardian, and made the PBS frontline documentaries Generation Like and Merchants of Cool. He's a research fellow of the Institute for the Future and the founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at the City University of New York in Queens, where he is a professor of media theory and digital economics. And his latest book just out is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Welcome to Background Briefing, Douglas Rushkoff. It's great to talk with you again. Well, thanks uh, for joining us, Douglas. And I mean, in a way, what your book is telling us is that the people who uh, have the most ability and resources to change the current trajectory that we are on and that the planet is uh, facing have no interest in doing so. And that perhaps that sort of cynicism has sort of filtered down into this kind of inchoate movements of in the mainstream like QAnon and other examples where there seems to be a destructive impulse out there rather than a constructive one. Yeah, and it's interesting, and you can look at it from either side. Either you've got the kind of the typical tech billionaire who you know, really just wants to to separate from civilization and escape by any means necessary. You know, they think this this civilization we're in is doomed, that people are stupid, and they either want, you know, to to escape to their island bunker or their seasteaded private uh, you know, nation or get off the planet altogether, whether it's uh, you know, taking a mission to Mars and building a little city there or just uploading their consciousness to a computer chip and existing on some other realm. You know, that that escapist urge is really strong in these, you know, mostly uh, mostly men who were plucked from college at age 19 before they really developed social skills. <laughs> and, and so I, I understand that. But the other side is almost even more scary. The people that subscribe to this belief called accelerationism. And that's, you know, guys like um, Musk and Thiel, that they think that this society that we're in, that our civilization and its governments are so corrupt and it's just so hopeless and the people are so stupid that they're hoping to bring on the end of times so that they can start again and do what they might call game B or, you know, civilization 2.0 and sort of rebuild society from the bottom up with a stack of computer programs that they've already written and have ready. If, if we would just kind of clear cut the remaining forests, they could uh, build their, uh, uh, their their new system, you know, as if you could control, alt, delete a computer and and reboot the thing. Well, we have examples of the cynicism of Peter Thiel um, and his contempt for average folk with the kind of candidates he's running, J.D. Vance and uh, Blake Masters for Senate. He's trying to buy two Senate seats, and the cynicism um, of these candidates is just breathtaking. But. It's not as if, I mean, you could argue, and and, <laughs> and the evidence is, is 
overwhelming that we have become an idiocracy. But I think it's not a question of the people being dumb. It's the fact is that they've been dumbed down. And these techno-utopians, with the corruption of the internet, which could have been a great tool for enlightenment, has turned out to be a tool for trivia and, and dumbing down. Yeah, and, and you know, and different um, the billionaires and players have different relationships to the mythologies that they're sharing. So I know people that have had, you know, uh, Peter Thiel throws these, you know, dinner parties up in his uh, Montana estate. And there will be, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know if you can even call them right wing, a uh, kind of authoritarian kind of neo-fascist intellectuals, along with Fox hosts and a few technology people will be at a dinner talking. And on the one hand, they do have, I mean, they're as smart or smarter than we are. I mean, they're certainly richer than we are. Um, they, they have a, a, an intellectual understanding of, of what they, how they think civilization should run. And then they have a mythology that they're selling through media to QAnon people, to conspiracy theorists. So they're sort of operating at two levels where, you know, a, a, a Tucker Carlson doesn't believe the, the kinds of racist tropes he's sharing on his program. But he does understand that the more he does that, the angrier he can get his audience, the more they will be activated to tear down the system so that they can rebuild the one that they that they want instead. So it's it's a very it's a very uh, cynical abuse of media and technology. But they don't really believe what they're saying. It took me a while to really to understand that they were that they were sort of operating at two levels at once. But isn't the broader notion that governs social media, etc., and is the basis of Facebook's fortune is creating friction, basically exacerbating tensions, stimulating inchoate emotions as opposed to informing and enlightening people. Yes, but, you know, I, I as, as a technology theorist and someone who's, you know, very aware of the biases of different technologies, yes, for sure, these technologies are biased towards sensationalism. But... Um, it's a little too easy and in some ways blame uh, uh, blame free to say, oh, you know, the technology made me do it. Or you look at some of the newer documentaries about, you know, this, the social dilemma and social media and look at what they do. Yes, but these technologies used by a certain kind of techno capitalist for the purposes of either extracting the most value from people or for the purpose of propagandizing people. In other words, if you take the, the uh, propaganda agenda of you know, Fox News at its worst and, and decide to use social media to perpetuate that, um, you are going to get a, a, a nasty, <laughs> get in some nasty effects. But, but that, that's because the people running these systems, again, they're not particularly educated or well-meaning. I mean, they may have started out that way when they were when they were kids and came up with an idea for a social network or a new app. But then they get 
plucked by a venture capitalist. You know, Peter Thiel discovered, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in college when he's 19. You know, this is a child, right? His, his frontal lobe isn't even fully developed. He doesn't have impulse control yet. He hasn't taken economics and history and ethics and all the other things he should have taken maybe then as a sophomore or a junior in college. So uh, kind of what do you expect when you take these kind of young, um, you know, pre-social uh, uh, adolescence, really, and their ideas and their technologies, and then steer them towards a very specific and real agenda. And you have a population of people, and this is, you know, kind of got me all the attention because I was, was you know, uh, asked to consult to them. You have a population of tech billionaires who not only believe the world is ending, but are spending a majority of their efforts creating bunkers and strategies for this end, almost as if the ending, the, the, the calamity, whether it's a climate calamity or social calamity or, or electromagnetic pulse or whatever it is that tears down civilization is not a nightmare for them, but a positive fantasy. That's where they want to drive things. They want to get there already. It's as if their companies are based so uh, uh, steadfastly on this idea of an exit strategy where, where every platform has an exit strategy. So, of course, you know, they think of the world in terms of their exit strategy. When do I actually escape from these people and, you know, move <laughs> move to my moon colony? And again, I'm speaking with Douglas Rushkoff, named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. He's an award-winning author, broadcaster, and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. And his latest book, Just Out, is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. So let's talk about uh, your book and uh, this idea of these escape fantasies of the tech billionaires and how you were invited uh, by this mysterious group who described themselves as ultra-wealthy stakeholders, and you showed up in the middle, middle of the desert to meet with them, and they mistook you for a futurist when you say you're a humanist. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> everything that they talked about in terms of uh, bunkers and you know colonies on Mars are against the very nature of what, of what you do, right? But somehow or other they thought that you were the guy to tell them about uh, how to escape the Earth and create your own future, albeit a rather bleak one. Yeah, although in a way the, the question that they ended up really wanting from me was a, a, a humanist question, if you will. The thing that they were most concerned about was how do they maintain control of their security force after their money is worthless? So <laughs> sort of the human relationships of if they have a dozen Navy SEALs, you know, contracted to fly out to their bunker when the when the event uh, occurs, um, if they don't have the promise of, you know, lavishing them with wealth and riches once people emerge from their bunkers in six months or a year, if this is it, you know, if this is the new reality, then why wouldn't the Navy SEALs just take over the bunker and get rid of the billionaire. Um, and 
you know, I, I didn't really have a good answer for them other than, you know, if you don't want your security force to kill you in the future, maybe be really nice to them now. You know, make I, I joked, I said, you know, pay for your head of security's daughter's bat mitzvah today and he won't shoot you tomorrow. Um, but the 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 reason why that that whole uh, 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 philosophy doesn't doesn't work for them is I mean if they were just treating people nicer now then there wouldn't be the need for an apocalypse bunker at all you know this is the the, the climate crisis is not insurmountable it's actually much simpler to fix than building some giant carbon capture. Uh, machine, you know, all we really need to be able to do is is wind down a bit of our energy expenditure, and uh, uh, things things could be much better very quickly. Well, the alternative is so grim. I mean, we live in a heavily armed country where half of the country, almost half of the country, is basically believes in a lie that uh, this f former president has metastasized into a bedrock belief amongst Republicans. And um, the more extreme MAGA Republicans are heavily armed. So if we are have a future where people are roaming around, you know, fighting over who's the last can of tuna, the people with the guns are, are the ones that will win. Right, but I mean... Sure. If it really came to that, I mean, if it really came to that, if civilization breaks down and we move into, you know, warlords and, you know, uh, you know, you know, sort of uh, uh, Rwanda 1990s. Um, yeah, it's not going to be it's not going to be pretty. Um, but the, the the strange thing is that, that there's a, a population of of people who they they want to promote that fear and that fantasy um, to bring down the current government and then replace it with something entirely more authoritarian. You know, technologists are used to being able to control things. If you could push a button and make this happen, you know, they like to operate things from a remove. Um, and they, uh, some of them genuinely believe it would be for everyone's own good if they just ran society from above. So I think they believe that the kind of warlords uh, stage would be brief until they exerted authority over, you know, over the masses. They're not really thinking about it so very intelligently. It's really a kind of a uh, a, a neurosis or, or even a psychosis. You know, the one of the studies I pointed to in the book, they found that uh, extreme wealth erodes people's ability to uh, experience empathy. You know, you put a, a, a billionaire tech bro in an MRI machine and show them a picture of a starving person and the part of the brain that lights up for a regular person doesn't light up for them. It's as if extreme wealth leads to a kind of brain damage, like a, a, as if there's been brain trauma. Um, so they're not uh, functioning the same way we do. They don't, they don't experience the world. They really just want to uh, build a kind of a, a digital womb around themselves. And they would prefer not even really to be interacting with other humans. They would prefer it being, you know, automated, you know, uh, or, robots and um, uh, entirely predictable uh, scenarios. So the, the, the 
letting the life go on the way it is, it's just so strange to them. They're used to the idea of winning. You play a game in order to win, right? And when you win, the game is over. So they're, it's, it's like a Marvel movie where they're just aching towards the end game, whatever it is. I mean, they love the idea that this the, one of the Marvel movies, there was a supervillain who just eliminated half the population of the universe by pushing a button and then that solved climate change. You know, that's the way that they think about um, solving problems. So let's talk a little about one of the main characters in your book, apart from the the billionaires that summoned you to the desert, this fellow J.C. Cole and his the SWOT analysis he does, SWOT meaning strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats, and the idea that there are people already in the in the bunker business, rising S a company in Texas, they build bunkers, um, they also build tornado shelters. For ordinary folk, $40,000 gets you an 8-foot by 12-foot emergency hideout, but you can spend $8.3 million on a luxury bunker called the Aristocrat, complete with a pool and a bowling lane, and they, that company is run by Christian evangelicals. But Cole himself, apparently, has had some sort of humanist <laughs> awakening. And he said, when he said to you, you know, about having these farms with guard dogs and surveillance cameras and where people can ride out the apocalypse. Then he paused and stared down the driveway of this farm and said to you, honestly, I am less concerned about gangs with guns than a woman at the end of the driveway holding a baby and asking for food. I don't want to be in that moral dilemma. So I guess he's halfway there, right? Between. Yeah, it was interesting. So, you know, I did this, uh, whatever, the talk consult meeting with the billionaires and wrote about it on uh, Medium in a column that, you know, went viral and crazy. And uh, a lot of the emails I got were from um, people who were catering to the the billionaire prepper, you know, people with businesses that were looking for, um, you know, billionaires who wanted to to invest or uh, people building, you know, bunkers and things for for billionaires to pay for now, so they could retreat to them later. And one of the ones I got was from this guy, J.C. Cole, who's uh, got a plan to build farms, these um, completely sustainable, self self reliant farms. So rather than just you know, most modern farms, they don't even have seeds. They buy little sproutlings and they don't have roosters. They just have hens and, you know, they buy new eggs. You know, it's a, it's uh, our agriculture the system is, is still based on very long supply chains. And what he wanted to do, and he has one now, is to build farms that, you know, have biodiesel and, and can really run themselves without any outside support. You, know, you have your own seeds, their own chickens, their own this, their own that. And, um, he emailed me and said, oh, you know, I've got, you know, the, a great solution and, and you know, a, a billionaire could pay me like five or ten million dollars now, guarantee themselves a place in one of my farms. You know, when when the event comes, I'm going to have farms, you know, within two hours of every major city so that you can get to one. You know, you don't need your helicopter. You can just drive there. and You'll, you'll be fine. And um, <laughs> and he was he I, I he said, come, you've got to see, you know, the prototype farm I'm building. And that he asked me, he's like, do you shoot? And I go there and he's a true, you know, MAGA Republican, right? He's a guy who can't say the word Hillary. He calls her her, you know, and he complains, you know, that Diane Feinstein made it so there's not enough, you know, bullets in your cartridge of your gun or whatever. You know, he was uh, uh, 
not the kind of person I would normally be friends with, right? He's a guy on the other, he's red, right? A red state guy. But his, because he's thinking logically, he was realizing that, you know, the problem will be for these farms. Yes, we'll have guards, we'll have Navy SEALs, and they'll come and protect us. But the, the best way for us to protect ourselves is to minimize the number of people who are going to need us, who are going to try to come and attack us. So part of his business plan is that some of the investment money that the millionaires give goes to um, educating and spawning and franchising other farms so that other people could like buy a kit, you know, that teaches them or a training that teaches them how to make a farm like this where they are. And the billionaires who look at this plan, they're like, huh? That's stupid because the billionaires are all thinking, why why leak any of your money out so that other people can do it? The whole point is that we can do it and the other people can't. But what J.C. Cole realizes is that if you do it that way, that other people can't have access to any of it, then they are going to be your problem. That's going to come back to bite you in the ass. And that's what these extremely toxic billionaire capitalists don't get. You can't suck the market dry or you're not going to have a market anymore, right? You can't live alone. You can't be a trillionaire with, a, with an electric fence that at some point the health of the rest of the world matters. The germs will get to you. The ticks will get to you. The radiation will get to you. The, 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 you know, the solar storms, the carbon, you know, it's like you're, you, you can't detach from everyone else's reality. We're at least somewhat interdependent. And the, the fact that a guy supposedly on the other side saw it made me realize, oh, it's really this sort of red-blue thing is not the real divide. It's those of us who understand we are in this together and those of us who think they're in it alone. And the, the tech bro billionaire people that I'm critiquing really want to go it alone. You know, they want to go, like Peter Thiel says, from zero to one or like Stuart Brand, the uh, he was a 60s radical, but he's a, a, a kind of a techno theorist now. He says, you know, we are as gods and may as well get good at it. You know, if you think of yourself as God, then you are like a Jeffrey Epstein, someone who just wants to spread your seed, you know, and have an island retreat with with young sex slaves to to control, you know, or even the way they look at themselves, the, the big goal for most of these tech guys is to become self-sovereign individuals. And you take apart that phrase, self-sovereign individual. Well, we all know individuality is stupid. You know, that's not fun. But the idea of being self-sovereign means nothing. It means being king of oneself. So they not only objectify women and people and the poor and the rest of us, but they're objectifying themselves, that they want to be king of this other person who's actually them. Well, Douglas, we could talk for a long time, and I hope we revisit this extraordinary subject that you brought forth in your new book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasy of the Tech Billionaires. I thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, and thank you for what you do. 
And again, I've been speaking with Douglas Rushkoff, named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. He's an award-winning author, broadcaster and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age, the host of the popular Team Human podcast. He has written 20 books, including the bestsellers Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed. He's written regular columns for media, CNN, The Daily Beast and The Guardian, and has made the PBS Frontline documentaries Generation Like and Merchants of Cool, and he's a research fellow of the Institute for the Future and the founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at the City University of New York in Queens, where he's a professor of media theory and digital economics. And his latest book just out is Survival of the Riches, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.